Oh, I love that commercial. That is so funny to me. Don't judge too uh, quickly. Well, I want to tell you or look at an epic story today. I'm right from the Bible. And uh, believe it or not, this epic story is about a prostitute and a couple of spies. Uh, but it's the kind of story that happens in the city of Jericho that if you had been an innocent bystander on the day that the events unfold in this story, I think it would have been one of those events that it would have been easy to judge too quickly and you would have come to the wrong conclusion about what's actually happening in this story. Well, as I said, it's in the Old Testament. In fact, it's found in Joshua, the second chapter. And so if you brought your Bible today, and I hope that you did, uh, why don't you pull it out right now and open up to Joshua, the second chapter. Uh, Joshua is in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the book of uh, Joshua. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, as you came in today, as Dan mentioned, there are some free Bibles on the tables, and uh, we're not just sending those to the scientists. We want you to have one of them. Uh, on your way out today, feel free to pick one of those up, take it home with you, and when you come back the next time, uh, bring it with you. And I know we've been doing some different things over the last few weeks, and so maybe you've sort of gotten out of the habit of uh, bringing your Bible with you on Sunday. I want to encourage you, uh, when you come next week, uh, bring that along so that we can study together. Let me give you a little background of the story, uh, historically, to kind of set this up, and then we'll dive in and see what we can learn. Um, the nation of Israel, for some time, had been held captive in Egypt. And as Dan said, thought about last week, as we looked at Moses, God called Moses to lead the people out of that captivity. And he leads them across the Red Sea as God miraculously parts the waters in an incredible way. And they journey on across. Later, God gives them the Ten Commandments that we see in the Bible and some other laws to live by. They're disobedient to God then. And they then, so God says, well, because you're not really listening to me, you can just wander in the wilderness for a while. And so for 40 years, they wander around never really making any progress. But now we're coming to the time where they are about to enter the land that God has promised to them. And as they prepare for that, Joshua, who has become the the leader of the Israelites because Moses has died, Joshua sends a couple of spies out to to scout out the land and to see what it's going to take to overcome the city of Jericho. And that's where we pick up the story today. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Let's jump right in here. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So Joshua sends these guys to, to go discover the land. You see the map here. There They were at uh, Shittim, or as it's called on this map, Abel Shittim. And so they had to make the hike probably several miles over to the river that runs down there, the Jordan River, and they had to find a place to cross it. And they cross over then and hike several more miles into the city of Jericho. And, and what's there, they try to just blend in. You know, they don't want to be noticed. Now, why did they go to the house of a prostitute? Maybe it's as simple as that is exactly where God sent them. Maybe in their own humanness, they thought the house of a prostitute, that's a place that a couple of guys wouldn't be noticed coming and going. But for whatever reason, they end up in Rahab's house. The story continues, verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Evidently, they weren't the best spies. They were easily detected. Verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. And I'm thinking when she, he sent this message, he didn't send a meek-mannered guy like me to take that message. I'm picturing several soldiers, big burly guys with swords strapped to their sides, take this message and say to Rahab, 
Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But here's what she does, and she only has a split second to make this decision. She says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And just when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Verse 6, but she had hidden them but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. They were laying there to dry. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, they go to the house of Rahab. And honestly, Rahab is the kind of woman that you would never expect God to choose to do something really significant. In fact, Rahab is the kind of woman that God should not be associated with at all. Rahab was, well, she was a prostitute. She was a hooker. And not only that, she was a, she was a Canaanite. And just earlier, God had said that He was going to destroy all of the Canaanites because their nation was so filled with sin and corruption. She is the enemy. And yet, even with her past, God chooses her to do something significant. In fact, you might be surprised to learn that if you were to read through the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, you'd find Rahab's name right there in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now maybe if you had been that bystander who was tempted to judge too quickly the events that were unfolding, you would have watched this and wondered to yourself, out of all of the people in the city, why Rahab? I think we begin to get an answer in verse 8. The story continues, before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Shihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Why, Rahab? Because there was one very important belief that was growing in Rahab's heart. A very important belief that changed her life and changed her future forever. You see, Rahab was growing in her belief in the power of God. She had heard what God had done. And after hearing what God had done, it was changing her heart. Rahab was developing a very healthy image of who God is. In fact, Rahab was developing the view of God like Paul writes about. Or, or the writer of Hebrews talks about. In fact, he writes about Rahab later. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews 11, you, you find like the hall of fame of faith people. I mean, there's name after name after name that God has recorded there that He honors because they demonstrated faith at some point in their life. And guess whose name is there? Rahab's. It says this of Rahab, by faith, by because of her belief in the power of God, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those 
who were disobedient. And so here's the lesson. Here's the lesson that I want you to take away from Rahab's story today. A proper view of God's power is what gives my life power. A proper view of God's power is what gives my life power. Do you remember the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Where the guy invents this contraption that shrinks things and somehow accidentally he shoots his children and they, they shrink down to minute size. And the rest of the movie is about what happens to them and them trying to get back to, to normal size. You know, I wonder sometimes if we in our minds haven't taken that same contraption in a sense and aimed it at God and we've shrunk God. Honey, I shrunk God. Because we often have this very, this very small image of God and who He is. And because we have this very small image of God, we're not willing to risk anything. We're, we're afraid to act courageously because we don't believe in the power of God. We lean away from doing anything that is bold because we think God is small. We pray such timid prayers because we don't believe in the power of God to do something that is really dramatic in our lives. You see, often we see God as someone that is just a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit more powerful, a little bit more wiser than we are, and we end up with just a supersized version of ourselves. And therefore, there's no power in our lives. Often we have thought of God, I think, as someone who is just a little bit bigger than the strongest person we can imagine. We have seen God as just a little more gracious than the most gracious person we can think of. We have seen God as just a, a little bit wiser than the wisest person we know. And our image of God is, it is too small. But I think in Rahab's heart, there was this growing understanding of just how big and powerful God really is. Paul, very clearly, in writing a, a letter to the Christ followers in the city of Ephesus reminds them of just how great the power of God is. He says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And he says there are three things I want you to know. I hope your hearts will get this. Because I want you to, to know the hope to which He has called you, the hope that God has called us to. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints are inheritance in eternal life with God. And then he says this, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Now Paul takes a, a couple of Greek adjectives there and puts them together. When he speaks of the power of God, he doesn't just say that it's great. And when he speaks of the, the power of God, he doesn't just say that it's incomparable. No, Paul puts those two things together and he says that the power of God is incomparably great. There is nothing that compares. There is nothing on heaven. There is nothing on the earth. There is nothing in the universe that compares to the power of God. It is incomparably great. So today, for a couple of minutes, I want to try to paint a fresh portrait of the power of God. I want to try to grow our view of the power of God so that His power can be at work in our lives. Because as we see the power of God so will be the power that works in our lives. 
So here's some things I think we've got to recognize about the power of God. First, we've got to recognize His creative power. Did you catch there in the second part of verse 11 that, that Rahab talks about that God, that your Lord, she says, is God of heaven and of earth? And I wonder if in part of that she doesn't recognize that He is the Creator of heaven and of earth. Our family had a great privilege just a few weeks ago. We uh, took a, a big vacation that we had planned for for a long time to Alaska. And uh, we saw some incredible things while we were there. We, we saw the kinds of things that words, you just can't describe in words. And the kinds of things that pictures don't, just don't do justice. And I've got to tell you, repeatedly, day after day while we were in Alaska, I would stand and look at scenes that I had never imagined and think to myself and sometimes say out loud, God, it's incredible what you've done. Your creativity is just amazing. God, how could you ever have imagined to create such beauty. You know, uh, scientists have tried to determine the, the weight of the earth. And according to their calculations, they believe that the earth weighs somewhere around six sextrillion tons. Now that's a six with 21 zeros. I don't really know what that means other than to say it is really heavy. And yet this, this heavy earth, we don't find it plummeting unobstructed through space, do we? No, all six sextrillion tons are suspended on nothingness. That's the creative power of God. Brendan Manning in one of his books says that if you were to take a dime and you were to hold it up to the, to the sky, to the night sky, and if your eyes had the magnification to be able to see in the space of the stars, that single dime would obstruct your vision from seeing 15 million stars. That's the creative power of our God. You know, a caterpillar has 228 separate and distinct muscles in its head. The average elm tree contains some 6 million leaves. Now, when you look at it in the summertime, that doesn't seem believable, does it? But if you've ever lived up north and have to rake all the leaves that fall out of it, suddenly you can believe it, can't you? The human heart. The heart pumps blood throughout the body with such pressure that that pressure could shoot blood 30 feet. That's the creative power of our God. Here's a spider. Kind of looks like one I killed in the office this morning, actually. Some of you will be happy to know. And, uh, but you know what the spider can do? It can spin three different kinds of silk and in an hour's time period it can spin 60 feet of silk all the while putting oil on it so that its own feet don't stick to the web as it spins it. That is the incredible great power of our God. Our God, His creative power is incomparably great. That's not the only thing you ought to notice about Him. You ought to also notice the majestic power of our God. Do you notice that as Rahab talks about God and what she has heard that He has done, she refers to Him several times as Lord. I think she has begun to recognize that God is ruling over the universe. That He sits on a throne in heaven and rules over the universe. You know, a lot of times we think in terms of pictures, don't we? And so maybe your image of who God is is around some painting maybe that you've seen of God. 
Maybe you've seen this familiar painting of, of Jesus holding a, a lamb on His shoulders and when you think of God, you think of that compassionate figure. A tender-hearted shepherd. Or maybe you've seen this picture of Jesus knocking on the door and your image of God is His relentless pursuit to have a relationship and to know us. Maybe when you think of God, you think of the image of Jesus hanging on the cross and you think of His incredible love for every one of us. You know, I think a painting that somebody ought to paint, maybe it's been done and I've just never seen it. But, but an image that we ought to have of God is of Him sitting on a throne. Somebody ought to paint a massive, gigantic throne and picture God sitting on that throne, ruling over the universe. Revelation 4 says that's exactly what He does. That God sits on a throne in heaven and He rules over the universe. And it says there that there are these creatures all around His throne in heaven. And they never stop repeating over and over again, chanting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as they chant those words, repeating over and over again, Holy, 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 they are proclaiming the perfection of God. And when they talk about the God who is, who was and is and is to come, they are reminding us that God is eternal. Isn't that a hard concept to get our minds fully wrapped around? That God is eternal? I mean, for each of us, there is in our lives a beginning and an ending, isn't there? In fact, everything in the universe has a, a particular day and time that it came into existence. Everything in the universe except God. He's always existed. Even before the earth, before the universe, even before the angels, God was. He has always been. He will always be. God exists outside of the concept of time. And that's so hard for us because everything else that we know about exists within the concept of time, but God doesn't. He is eternally sitting on His throne, ruling the universe. His majestic power is incomparably great. There's another thing I would note about the power of God, and that is His sovereign power. Do you notice again in verse 10 that Rahab, as she talks about what she's heard about God, she says, you know, um, when we heard of it, our hearts melted. Everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is in heaven. I'm sorry, I'm aiming to go back to verse 10. My bad. We, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what He did to Shehan and Og. He's talking about the fact that He is controlling the destiny and the future of the nation of Israel. You know, sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we, we control our own future, don't we? We control our destiny. I heard about one guy in England that must have believed that he was in control of his own future and he tried to take some steps to make sure it was going to be good. You see, there is a, a zoo in England that, uh, like all zoos, has a, a parking lot. And uh, this parking lot, uh, there was a, a, a ticket counter, a, a guy who was there all the time, every day, you know, collecting for money from people as they parked their cars. Well, this guy showed up every day, did his job. But after 25 years of showing up every day, one day suddenly he didn't show up. There was nobody there to, to take the money from the people at the zoo. And so, you know, somebody at the zoo got on the phone and called the city and said, hey, your, your parking attendant, your employee didn't show up today. 
And they didn't really say much, just kind of hung up the phone. And a few minutes later, the city called back and said, uh, we checked really quickly and that's not our employee. It's your employee. And they were like, well, he's not our employee. We never employed him. Well, you know what? The guy never showed up again. They realized nobody had ever hired him. For 25 years, he had shown up every day collecting tolls for parking from people. And I don't know where he is today. Maybe he's in the south of France in a villa somewhere. But he tried to control, control his own future. They figure he must have pocketed somewhere around $500. I don't remember if that was a day or a week. Altogether, they think he pocketed some $7 million trying to control his own future. And you know what? He may think that he controlled his own future, but the reality is God could take all of that away in an instant. God doesn't control his future. and or God controls his future, not that man. And you know what? You and I, we do not control our future. God does. He is the, the sovereign God who is in complete control. And I think Rahab was beginning to see the sovereign power of God at work. And she was trusting her future to God. Maybe that's why we pray such timid prayers sometimes. Because we don't really trust in the sovereign power of God to guide our future. I read this week a pastor was talking about a family that attends his church. And every day on the way to church, this uh, every Sunday, this family would pass uh, down 405. They would see the Goodyear blimp. And as they passed the, the Goodyear blimp one Sunday, the little boy said, oh, I want to go for a ride someday in the Goodyear blimp. Do you think, Mom, that I could go for a ride someday? And she just was being real with him. And she said, honey, you know what? That's one of those things. And unless you happen to know somebody, you don't ever get to go for a ride in the Goodyear blimp. That's just not going to happen. Kind of squelching his dream. But you know what he did? He, uh, he decided, you know what, Mom? I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to give me a ride in the Goodyear blimp. And so she began to pray. He began to pray. And he prayed and prayed every day. His, his mom was a school teacher. His name was Pat. And after he'd been praying for several days for a ride in the Goodyear blimp, uh, she had the student who was going home early from school. And as the mom came to get the little girl from school, uh, she said, you know, where are you going? Why are you taking a dollar out early? And she said, well, today's a very special day for Kristen. Her father knows someone and she's getting a ride on the Goodyear blimp. Well, the mom's face just dropped. She couldn't believe this. And the other mom was like, you know, what's wrong? Why do, why do you look that way? And she said, well, you'll never believe. And she told him the whole story about her son and how he wanted to go for a ride on the Goodyear blimp and how he'd been praying about it every day, asking God to give him that ride. And just a few days later, Pat and her little boy were floating over the skies of California in the Goodyear blimp because that little boy had a childlike faith that believed in a God who had power, incomparably great power, that could even get him a ride on the Goodyear blimp. Rahab had that kind of belief in the growing power of God growing in her heart. And you know what happens in the rest of the story? In the rest of the story, Rahab and the spies kind of come to an agreement. They come to an agreement that uh, they'll protect her if she'll just keep their presence secret. And she helps them sneak out and sneak away. And eventually, the Israelites decide there now's the time for them to advance against Jericho. And God gives them kind of an ironic plan for capturing Jericho. He says to them, I, I want you to go and you, you march around the city one time every day for six days. And on the seventh day, you march around it seven times and I'll give you the city. And they did that. And on the seventh day, after the seventh time of marching around the city, the walls of the city came down and the Israelites rushed in and they destroyed the city. They destroyed everything but Rahab and her family. 
And Rahab saw in her life the incomparably great power that God at work in saving her. Paul, when he was writing that same letter to the church at Ephesus, talked about how we ought to view the power of God. He said there, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more, more than we can ever measure, than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Paul says the way that we ought to view the work of the sovereign power of God is that He is able to do far more, immeasurably more, than we could ever ask or imagine. So let me ask you this morning, which view of God are you holding on to? A view of a a shrunken, He's just a little bit bigger and a little bit better than me view of God? Or the view of God that was growing in Rahab's heart of the incomparably great God? It matters which one you choose. And which one you choose becomes evident by how you live your life. Let's ask God to raise our view of His incomparably great power in our lives. God, I thank You. And I worship You today. Because of Your greatness and Your power, God, it is incomparably great. God, I just ask You to raise our view of Your power in our lives. God, forgive us that we have so often operated in our lives like You are a small, shrunken God. We've not been willing to take risks or to do something courageous. God, would You change our hearts today and change the view of how we see You so that we might ask You to work with power in our lives. We'd quit praying timid prayers and we'd ask You to do things that are dramatic in our lives. God, that we'd act courageously. We'd act boldly. God, You would fill our lives with power as we come to understand the incomparable greatness of Your power. Thanks, God, for how You'll work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.